0: Let me tell a, a little story. Uh, a while back, uh, maybe a couple years ago, one of my young sons was going through a time of just being, uh, having a problem with exaggerating, just exaggerating a little too much on everything. And, um, and so I, I remember bringing him in and we had to have a talk about this. And of course, you know, the great story that you should tell in those situations is the boy who cried wolf. So I told them of the story, of the boy who cried wolf. If you keep exaggerating like this, people aren't going to believe you. And I said, it's been getting so bad, I'm going to tell you something right now. And I was very careful with my words, and I stressed this. I said, I want you to promise me that you will never exaggerate again. I stressed the word Never and uh, I was doing it on purpose. And so he, he, said, he said this. He said, uh, Dad, that sounds impossible. <laughs> I said, okay. I knew that was going to happen. He was going to say that. And so I said, well, that should be your goal. Amen. That should be your goal. I'm going to never exaggerate ever again. But if you do, then all I want you to do is come to me Ask forgiveness, and I'll always forgive you. And that's what I told him. I made him the promise. I promise you, if you'll just admit it and say, I exaggerated, I will always forgive you. Every single time. And then he said this. He said, Dad, since you said that, now I can do it. (laughs) And that's exactly his words. And I said things that way because of the verse that we're about to look at. It really is the same truth, it's the same idea. So really, it's a parenting method that God came up with. Uh, because God is our good, good Father, as we just sang about. This is what He does for us. He sets an ideal standard. A standard that's very high for us in our life. Don't sin. That's a very high standard. But He knows we're going to blow it. He knows that. But, so He offers a solution. And we talked about that last week. We talked about confessing our sins, and he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In that vein, really, 1 John chapter 2 and verse 1 picks up where he left off there. So let's look at that verse. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 1. My little children. John the apostle is writing, My little children, these things I write unto you that ye sin not. Don't sin. And if any man sin, (laughs) we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He starts off by saying, my little children. That's a very endearing term from this old apostle. Children, he wasn't talking to little, actual little children, he was talking to his young flock of believers. He had walked with Jesus, and so he's speaking very kindly, and and with just a very uh, grandparently Grandfatherly uh, sense. These things I write unto you that ye sin not. All that all that I've been writing to you and all that I'm writing to you in this letter is so that you will not allow sin into your life. I don't want you to sin. But if you sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Advocate, this word means a person called to one's side, an intercessor. An attorney, as we might say today. Actually, in ancient Rome, that word, that Greek word, was used in the court system to describe a person. If you'd be having court, there was one allowable thing, and that there was a certain point in the trial where a witness could stand up and speak up for the accused person. And that person would be called an advocate. So John is saying, Jesus is your advocate. Jesus is the one. If you sin, and you're standing before God, and you know you've sinned, you're standing before the judge, you know you have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ the righteous. And this advocate stands up in your defense, and he speaks for you. And, uh, and the great thing is, he's speaking to his own father. His father is the judge. And that's a pretty good deal you've got right there. But wait, there's more. Look at verse 2. And he is... The propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Christ's death was the propitiation for our sin. The word propitiation means atonement. It means an appeasing. The point here is it's it's about covering something. The point here is that God's justice demands that He punish sin. If we sin, it, it is only fair, it is only right, it is righteous. God, as a righteous judge, must punish sin. If he doesn't, he would, he would cease to be righteous. But then Christ comes along and he is the propitiation. So he then stands in our defense and he also is killed and his blood is spilled. And so he takes the punishment and that satisfies that, that demand for justice. So we could say that Jesus then, his blood, turns away God's wrath from us. This is the whole uh, beautiful thing that God God has done and and provided for our sin. The word propitiation is also used to describe the cover on the the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament. The mercy seat, the blood of the spotless lamb was sprinkled there uh, once a year. So what an incredible truth and what a beautiful picture. Jesus' blood is the thing that covers our sins. So when we come and we have sinned, we have an advocate. But we also, and he comes and he then also becomes the payment for our sins. This is just too good to be true. But all of our sin has been paid for on that cross. But then the verse ends very interestingly. It says, not for ours only. He didn't just do this for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. John wants us to remember that Jesus died for everybody, not just the people in this room, not just for the people in the church. This, now, very important phrase here. It does not mean that all people are saved. It does not mean that every person, that uh, when Jesus died on the cross, for every person, the sins of the whole world, that doesn't mean that every person is saved. It means that every person has already had their sins paid for. It only becomes theirs when they receive it by faith. The Bible says, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God. You know, if if I buy you a gift and uh, I hand it to you, but you don't take it, it's not my fault. I've paid for the gift. It's done. It's settled. This thing is paid for. But if you don't take it, it's not on me, it's on you. If you're in a pit and I throw you a rope, but you refuse the rope, I've done everything I can to save you. I've done everything I can. You know, our Calvinist and Reformed friends see this a little bit differently. They look at Scripture and they believe in something called limited atonement, which means that Jesus only died for those He chose to be saved. His his atonement is limited to them. But this clearly says that Jesus died for the sins of the whole world. The whole world. Jesus died for everybody. But his blood is only applied to a person through faith. Through faith. And you see the sad part of that is people who believe in limited atonement can't honestly really tell somebody Jesus died for you. I can't tell a man on the street Jesus died for you because I don't know for sure if he did. But we do know that. We believe Jesus did die for every person as it says here. Not for ours only but for the sins of the whole world. So with these two words, John, with these two verses, excuse me, John has established again the way that an honest Christian walking in the light, somebody who's living in the light, deals with sin. We bring it to Jesus every time. We Honestly, we don't try to shove it under the rug. We don't try to deny that it exists. We just bring it before the Father. And every time, every time, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the Righteous. And he stands there and says, I'll forgive you again. I'll forgive you again. Just bring it to me. Bring it to me. And let's restore that fellowship once again. The two great things. And then now, as John moves on here, he moves into another important topic. And that is helping believers have the assurance of their salvation. God wants us to know that we know that we know that we know we're saved. In fact, there's two great things that you can do for somebody. One is to tell them how to be saved. The other is to tell someone how to have assurance of their salvation. Those are some of the greatest gifts that you'll ever give to any person ever. For example, if I put a million bucks into a bank account in your name, that'd be a great thing. But the joy comes to you when I tell you about it. (laughs) If you never knew about it, and you just, uh, it's just some far off thing. But if I show you the receipt, I show you it's there. You can go access it at any time. All of a sudden, woohoo! And that's the same way it is when you help somebody understand you can be sure that you're saved. You can know that you know that you know that you were born again. And when somebody finally gets that, it is like the greatest day ever. I am saved. I am saved. And I know it. You can know it with a capital K, right? Is that no, yeah, capital K. (laughs) And it changes everything when we know it. So here are a couple external marks that someone is truly born again. John says, I want you to know. And so here are two of them. The first one is, as we're going to see, is obedience to God's commands. If If you begin to see obedience in your life, you know that there is something genuine inside of you. Here we go. Verse 3, and hereby we do know that we know him, and hereby we do know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. So remember the the setting for this uh, book, the Gnostics, they made a big deal about knowledge. Uh, In fact, the very word Gnostic comes from gnosis, which means knowledge. They believed that they had a higher knowledge than everybody else. They had, had kind of entered a new plane of uh, enlightenment and understanding. And, and they knew more than all these little peons down here. They really rose them, uh, raised themselves. And so this is why I think probably John is really going to focus in on this term, knowledge. In fact, he uses it 40 times in this short letter. He had to straighten out their concept of knowledge. And so he says here, I'll show you how to know that you know him. I'll show you how to know that you know him. And here's the here is the external mark if you if you're saved. If you're a genuine born again Christian, that is you keep his commandments. Now let's clarify. This does not say, and I want to make it very clear, this does not say that keeping his commandments make you know him. That's not what it says. It's saying that if you truly know him, you just will keep his commandments. It'll be in you to do it. There is, something, there is something new inside of you. The keeping of the commandment really refers to a continual, consistent pattern of life. He's not saying you're perfect. We've already established that. Uh, don't sin. But if you sin, you have an advocate with the Father. God knows we're going to sin. God knows there's sin in us. He, he's talking about a consistent pattern of life. What do you see in your pattern of life? As someone has said, really what, this, what we're talking about here is not about being sinless. It's about sinning less. And, and once a person is truly saved, the Holy Spirit comes into that person and He begins to lead us, the Bible says, and He will lead us into truth and He will lead us to begin to obey the commandments of God. You have a new nature that wants to do those things. There's just something inside of you that is, is aiming toward that and pretty soon, You begin to look back and you begin to see more and more of a pattern of an obedient life. Something that has been began to obey God and a person comes to church and they start to get around people and all of a sudden that pattern begins to show itself. I heard a story of uh, that illustrates this truth, I think, really sweetly. The story is an old time story of a son who uh, was in an old farmhouse with his with his dad, and the family woke up that morning, and before he went off to school early in the morning, his dad said, son, when you get back from school, your job is to clean the stable. And I'll and I, this afternoon, when I get back, I'll milk the cows. You clean the stable, I'll milk the cows. So later, when little boy got home from school, he got home, and he noticed his dad laying down uh, on his bed, and he said, dad, why are you... Why are you on the bed? And he said, son, I am just not feeling well today. I'm, just, I just, I'm not going to be able to get out, so uh, you just go take care of what you've got to take care of. Well, that little boy went out there, and he, he, uh, he cleaned the stable. But then he thought about it, and he said, you know what? I'm going to milk the cows too. His dad never told him to milk the cows. It was not even told that he had to. Why did he do it? Because of love for his father. And when we fall in love, with Jesus, when there's just something inside of us that all of a sudden is our whole life has just pointed to Him, there is just this desire to want to obey, to want to even take it further. God, whatever you said, and that's why Jesus came along and He gave the Sermon on the Mount. You know, you've heard it said this, but I tell you this, a person who loves Jesus just wants to go beyond. Lord, I love you. I'm glad to serve you. You know, some people think, they have this thought of how far can I get to the edge of sin without falling off? You know, I'm a Christian, and how far? Where is the line so that God won't be mad at me? Well, God, does God want me to do this or that, you know? But that's the wrong way to look at it. That's the wrong kind of question. If we love Jesus, it's more about just wanting to please the Father. It's just more about wanting to get his, just him's to smile on us. And so as we look at something, at this verse here, if you have no desire, if we have no desire to obey the Lord, and we see no pattern of obedience in our life, then we have reason to doubt that we were ever even saved. That's the truth. But if sin bothers us, if sin bothers us, I mean, if, it, if you start to do something against the commandments of God and you start to feel it, <laughs> and you hate, somebody has said, uh, you know, the most miserable person is not an unsafe person. It's a, it's a Christian who's living in sin. And that's the most miserable person on the earth. They just can't live with themselves. And if that's the case, that means God is just trying to draw you back. The Holy Spirit is saying, you're, you're doing something you shouldn't. Come back. Come back like that prodigal son. You're still my son. But boy, you, your fellowship is so broken right now. You need to come back. And that you know that you're a child of God, if that's the case. Now John goes on to clarify this verse, verse 4. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar. And the truth is not in him. And we're going to get a little harsher here. This is the negative way to say the same truth. And really, as I was saying, it's probably directed right at the Gnostics on this one, I think. You cannot say that you know God, that you have this knowledge of God. And not do what he says. You're just a liar. You're just a plain liar. Another word for that is hypocrite. A hypocrite is just a liar. Our youngest son Joshua came running in the house the other day. crying. My brother, he's a hip, hip, hypocriter. He's a hypocriter. And he heard that children's song about being a hypocriter. That we, have, that we sing. But he didn't even know exactly what it meant. What he was trying to say. was, My brother lied. So he's a hypocriter. And Anyone who says they love Jesus, but the pattern of their life is disobedience, is a hypocrite. They are a liar. I did not say that. John said that. And if you would go to John and say, John, how dare you say it? Call somebody, John would say, I didn't say that. God told me to say that. This is what God has said. So we all were going to keep passing the buck until it gets to God. But he did say it. You, can't, you cannot do that. Love for God and obedience for God. Love for God and obedience to God are inextricably linked. They just are. The day that we realize that God didn't give us commandments because He's a killjoy is a wonderful day in our life. It's the most beautiful thing. His commands are given because He loves us. He doesn't want to destroy our lives. He's trying to protect us. And they're an expression of His love. I love you. And so I'm not going to leave you all by yourself down there. I'm going to tell you what the best thing for your life will be. And here they are. Verse 5, But whoso keepeth his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know th- we that we are in him. See, another, It's just another beautiful way to say the same truth. When we keep God's word by the way we live, God's love for us, and I believe that's what this verse is talking about, is God's love for us now. His love for us has been brought to completion. Let me try to describe what I mean. God's love in creating us, the fact that He even created us and made us and gave us life, that's, a, that's an expression of His love to us. God's love in not leaving us without direction, as I just mentioned, and gave us His commandments along the way. God's love in sending His Son to die in our place. God's love in bringing someone into our life to share the gospel with us. God's love then giving us the Holy Spirit to guide us through this, through this world. I mean, God's love in just giving us a sunset and a sunrise. God's love and just filling our life with beauty. God's love, God's love, God's love, God's love. He just pours it out. And once a human, God just keeps pouring out love on a person. Why? What, where, is, where is this heading? Where is this leading? It's leading to a place where a person just falls in love back to God and gives his life over to do what God says. Ultimately, whoso keepeth his word in him verily is the love of God perfected or completed. God's uh, love is, finds its completion in a person who is loving and obeying God. And so the conclusion really of all of this then is in verse 6. He that saith, he abideth in him ought himself also so to walk even as he walked or as Jesus walked if you say i'm abiding in christ i'm a christian i'm living as a christian i i've fully accepted this i'm a born again believer then every then every one of, of every person who says that ought every day it ought to, we ought to look a little more like jesus walk the word walk of course as we know means live or your way of life, our walk, we ought to. our way of life ought to be more like, like Jesus' way of life. That was John's pattern. John walked with Jesus. He heard Jesus. He saw Jesus. And you could tell, his, his still, in these, in these last few years of his life, still, the thing that he was all about was walking as Jesus walked. Whether people realize it or not, everyone lives by some standard. Everybody. Everybody has a morality. You go in the prisons, there's a morality. That, you know, those guys, I'll do this, but I would never do this. You know, I'll do this, but I'll never everybody has a standard. For Christians, our standard is a person. It's Jesus. We ought to walk even as he walked. Just that thought um, alone has made a big difference in my spirit especially, and it should be all the time. I'm ashamed to say that it isn't. But just, at, but anytime I actually put that kind of a thinking in in the moment, whatever moment I'm in, it changes everything in the moment. And the times for some reason that it really kicks in for me is when we're out uh, door knocking or soul winning, talking to people about Jesus. And really the thought I always have, and I don't know if this is biblical or right or whatever, but I just, kind of begin to almost imagine myself um, with, you know, with a little bit bigger beard and, and, and a long robe and a sash that goes down here, you know, and and just imagining myself as Jesus Jesus walking down this street in Lodi, Stockton, wherever we are. And I think, Jesus, if you were literally just walking down this street, what would the words be that you would say to the person that I'm about to come in contact with? How would... What would be the tone of voice? What would be, how would your eyes look at people? And it changes everything when you begin to try to say, God, I want to walk as you would walk. Jesus, I want to walk as you walked. Just that very thought changes every interaction with every person. It changes everything. So just imagine if you could do that as you go to work tomorrow or as you're in your neighborhood. Imagine how that would just change things if that's how you we're thinking. What a wonderful daily prayer. Lord, today, show me how to walk as you walked. That's the mark of a genuine believer. Somebody who is following. Their pattern of life is to follow Jesus. And number two, the other external mark of a genuine Christian, John says, is love for the brethren. Love for the brethren. There's a well-known poem. To dwell with those or, excuse me, to dwell above with those we love, oh, that will be glory. To dwell below with those we know, well, that's another story. <laughs> it's, it's not always easy to love the people down here. But genuine love for brothers and sisters in Christ, those people who, who are in the family of God, it re- if we have genuine love for them, it really is a sign that you have Jesus in your heart, that you really are a born-again Christian. Now, I'm going to try to explain these verses here. So John goes into a bit of a play on words in these first couple. So let's look at these. Verse 7. Brethren, I write no new commandment unto you, but an old commandment, which ye had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which ye have heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write unto you, which thing is true in him and in you? Because the darkness is past and the true light now shineth. These are a little bit confusing. Just track with me. The commandment this, that John is referring to, old and new here, is, is the commandment to love one another. It's to love. And he'll emphasize that in a moment. But he emphasizes the love in general a lot in this epistle. In fact, he w- uses the word love 45 times in this one small letter that is more times than any book of the bible except psalms and psalms has hundreds of chapters this is a short book 45 times and every one of them in the book of first john here is the word agape the greek word agape the god type of love the selfless giving type of a love so in these verses john is basically saying listen Love is not a new commandment, but an old commandment, which you have heard from day one as as a Christian. You knew this as soon as you came to Christ. You knew. knew. In other words, love has always been something that God has commanded. Leviticus chapter 19, 18, that's an old commandment. It says, love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's an old commandment. Very old. God's always been about love. But in another sense, the command to love is considered new. So he says, you know, this is an old commandment, yes, but it's also a new commandment. And I think here when he says that, John's referring to what he himself heard Jesus say out of his own mouth. That's in John thirteen, thirty-four. Jesus said, A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another, or that ye love one another as I have loved you that ye also love one another. This command is new in the sense that Jesus gives new understanding and new clarification to this commandment. Notice the difference, okay? So you have Leviticus chapter 19 that says, love your neighbor as yourself. And we all love (laughs) ourselves, So make sure you love your neighbor as yourself. But look what Jesus says. Jesus says a new commandment. I'm going to give you a further clarification on this. I want you to love one another as I have loved you. That's new. That's different. It's not just as you love, as you love yourself. No. Love one another as I love you. The new commandment of love is based on the example of Jesus. And now that Jesus was, came, he, he was here, he came to earth, he walked on the earth, And people watched him. So now we have an example to look to. This is the picture of love. This is the living embodiment of love. So if you really want to understand how to love another believer, another Christian, you have to look at Jesus. You have to look at him. Love one another as I have loved you. Some have called this kind of love, and I love this definition, unconditional devotion to other believers. Unconditional devotion to other believers. We do know one thing, and that is that Jesus' greatest expression of love was giving. The Bible says Jesus gave himself a ransom for many. He said, Greater love hath no man than this, that a man would lay down his life for his friends. In the example of Jesus, giving of yourself, giving of your time, Giving of your energy, giving of your resources to other believers is the greatest expression of love. If you would lay down your own life, you lay down your own wishes, lay down your own desires, lay down your own plans for the sake of somebody else, that is the greatest expression of love. And it is what Jesus did for others. It's hard to find good news these days. You read the news, even church news, Christian news. It's, you read what's going on. It's so focused on the attacks against God and the attacks against his word. And I agree. And it gets you all riled up. But a pastor recently wrote something and he wanted to give people, some Christians, some good news. And I love what he wrote. and I'm just going to read it real quick to you here. Just a couple paragraphs. He said this. He said, this week, this week, I saw a 70 year old woman. Drop by our church to sharpen coloring pencils so that the little children could do their Bible story lessons next Sunday. I saw a single mom photocopying her lesson plan as she prepared to visit our local school where she runs religious education classes. I saw a group of 14 teenagers gather after school to brainstorm the program for this term's children outreach program they run. I saw a brand new Christian share her testimony for the first time. I saw someone weeping as they bowed their head with another. I saw a single woman carrying a young baby so that the tired mother could chat with others over a cup of tea, etc., etc., etc. In other words, there are little acts of Christ-like love happening around us all the time. And this, this church is by far one of the, the most loving places I have ever seen. And we just had that Time of, you know, COVID at the very beginning and everybody thought everybody was going to lose their job and the whole world was going to fall apart. And, and uh, you know, man, just the rallying response from the people. I literally, as I've said before, I literally had money hand, handed to me saying, give it to somebody in need. And I couldn't find any more people in need. You know, it was hard to find. That's amazing. People involving themselves emotionally and with all of their lives involving themselves with the needs of others. Saying, I'm just going to help this person. I'm going to do this for this person. People laying down their lives for their friends. That is proof that Jesus is in them. That is proof. You love your brothers and sisters. You lay down your own desire. You lay down your life for your brothers and sisters. In the last part of this verse, in verse 8, John commends them for doing that. He says, which thing is true in him and in you? Because the darkness is past and the true light now shineth. I think John commends them saying this, that as they live out this love and continue to do so, it's like a light that dispels the darkness of the world. And more and more, that is so true. And Jesus talked about that. How will men know that you're my disciples if you have love one for another? And that light just begins to shine. But there were some people who were not living in that light. In verse 9, He that saith he is in the light and hateth his brother is in darkness, even until now. Again, I think he's referring to the Gnostics here. They had this very prideful attitude toward other believers. I'm up here, you're down here. It's the very opposite of love. So he says it's impossible to be living in the light, enjoying sweet fellowship with God, walking in a way that God approves, obeying Him, and at the same time hating God's family. Can't do it. Cannot do it. It's impossible. Hating a brother in Christ, hating and despising a brother in Christ is proof that you're still in darkness. You, you, listen, if, we're, if we hate somebody, I mean really despise the ground a Christian, another Christian walks on, you need to question whether you even have Jesus in you. I'm not saying you have to like everybody. Love for God, love for our brothers is two sides to the same coin. And John's going to really stress that later on. He's not saying, again, we have to be bosom buddies with every person. That is not. In fact, God never commands us to like everyone. (laughs) He says to love everyone. And it says it in this next verse. And he, he that loveth his brother abideth in the light, and there is none occasion of stumbling in him. If you have an inner desire to be around God's people, to come to church and fellowship to serve alongside other brothers and sisters to encourage each other and to keep building each other up and you just enjoy when you see others others uh, growing in christ and you want to feed that flame even more and you just sense that and feel that then you know something you know first of all that didn't come from you (laughs) that's not a natural thing that's a supernatural thing there's a light inside of you there's something that god has done you're a christian jesus lives inside of you In fact, if you find a Christian who is loving others and abiding in the light, you're going to find none occasion of stumbling in him. In other words, you're going to see less and less occasions of stumbling into sin. You know, filling your life with the right things is a great way to keep from doing the wrong things. The more you just fill it up with good. Paul said if you walk in the Spirit, you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. Again, it's not about being sinless, it's about sinning less. Verse eleven But he that hateth his brother is in darkness, and walketh in darkness, and knoweth not whither he goeth, because that darkness that darkness has blinded his eyes. I get it, it's not easy to love some people. (laughs) Some of you are probably thinking, Pastor Luke, you're kinda hard to love, okay? So and you'd be right. But when we are walking in the light, it's so much easier. So please walk in the light so you don't hate me, okay? That's what I'm saying. <laughs> I want you guys to get this. Walk in the light, and you don't hate other brothers and sisters in Christ. Seriously, it's, it, you know what? This is true. It is absolutely amazing who you can love if you have Jesus inside of you. It is. I mean, there's some people I would never love. <laughs> but you, you, you're around them, and you say, there is just something in me that I'm not angry I'm not upset. I just, I I see the need for, for Jesus. I see the need for the blood of Christ to come in and wash this person's sins away. That is a supernatural ability. That is something that only God can give. But according to this verse, if there are some Christians that you despise, again, it's just a sign that we're walking in darkness and darkness has blinded our eyes and that needs to be addressed. It is a fallacy to think that we can be totally in love with God and yet have hatred for any of our fellow brothers and sisters. Now, when it comes to Christians getting along over petty things, <laughs> and that's, you know, that's always, you know, this and that, who's, you know. There's a great old saying that I think helps apply this truth that we've been talking about in this scriptural command to love one another. It's a really old truth. Augustine wrote it. You have it on the notes there. And here's what he said. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, Liberty. In all things, charity, love. That's good. That's good. Uh, if The main things uh, we have to be unified on. The blood of Jesus Christ that we saves. We need to be unified on all of that. Other, some of the non-essential things, it's okay. You, we, you have liberty to believe what you want to believe and how you're going to interpret that. We understand. But no matter what, we always love. We always love. If we do everything right, First Corinthians says, if we do everything right here, we worship the Lord in a good way, the right biblical way, and we just do all the things you're supposed to do, but we have not love, we've missed the mark completely. This is not a time for Christians to be at each other's throats. If there ever was a day in America, and any time in the world, this is not that time. We have a job to do for the Lord. So let's just keep walking in the light, and we're going to see that supernatural love for one another come out and It's going to start telling people we're the disciples of Jesus. Lord, we thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the light that it brings to our life. Help us to live in that light each and every single day. We love you, Lord. Amen. amen. Thank you, everybody. You're dismissed.